I wonder if you've ever had the experience of running into a friend or acquaintance that you knew several years before, hadn't seen them in a long amount of time, and you meet them, and you're surprised how much they've changed, how much is different. You knew them as something, and now they're something seemingly totally different, and the question in your mind is, what happened? What happened? Could be positive or could be negative. You know, it's certainly probably something that a lot of people think of when they run into me and they haven't seen me since the days when I worked on in Washington, Washington D.C. on Capitol Hill and working for political ambition, and now they run into me and I'm a pastor in Dubai, and they think, what happened? What happened? You know, if you were to run into the man of the story that we're about to read, Simon, years later in his life, after this account we're about to look at this morning, probably have the same question. You run into him days before he's martyred for his faith. And you look back and you see this fisherman. What happened? What happened to Simon? We're going to look at that this morning in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, and I'd invite you to turn there. I'm going to go ahead and read that section. Luke 5, 1 through 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he, Jesus, was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he, said, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I'll let down the nets. And when they'd done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So as a framework for thinking about this story this morning, I'm going to divide this story up into five parts. Into five parts. So let's begin by looking at part one. This is not a typical morning. Not a typical morning. One morning, Jesus walks down the shoreline of this lake, followed by a large crowd. And this Jesus is gaining popularity. He's healed sick people. He's cast out demons. And many were noticing that as he taught along the way, this man had power and authority, even in his words and his teaching. Power they never heard before. So Jesus climbs into one of the two empty fishing boats and he calls this man Simon to come man the boat for him. Just take him out a little bit, take him out a little, and he's going to turn and face these crowds on the shoreline and teach them. 
For Galilee, this might have just seemed like an average morning. A rabbi, a teacher coming through, teaching his teaching, people gathering. But that's soon going to change. See, Luke isn't interested as a historian, as an eyewitness. He's not interested in recording some kind of piece of mundane Galilean history. When you encounter Jesus, you are very far from the mundane. These first three verses we see create an anticipation around this man, Jesus. Every little detail is a piece of the stage that Jesus himself is purposefully building to reveal himself. So the first thing this passage reveals is that Jesus is sovereign. He orchestrates everything with a purpose. So let's look again at verses 1 through 3. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So why does Jesus look for two boats instead of just one? Why will the fishermen need to have time to clean and mend their nets? Well, we'll get to that in a little bit. So Jesus gets into Simon's boat. So far, this story seems just to be about Jesus and the crowds. And Simon is simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. He gets roped into driving this man around in his boat. But as the story unfolds, we see Jesus specifically, sovereignly, choosing Simon's boat because he has plans to specifically choose Simon himself. So every detail of our stories then, much like Simon's, our lives, our circumstances, countless events, situations, relationships, opportunities, all of this is not just some happenstance. This is God's plan, which he is sovereignly orchestrating and giving to us on a daily basis even. So today, today is the stage that God has built for his glory and his power to be put on display in your life, in the life of this church, because Jesus is sovereign. And when we talk about the sovereignty of Jesus, it's not just about defining some attribute of his character so that we can say who he is, that he plans everything and he makes it happen, period. No, it's also that Jesus uses that kind of power for the good of his people. We make note of his control and his ordering of our lives so that we will worship him, so that we will praise him for how perfect and wise he is to set our lives the way he has. How has God set up your life? And is your response praise to him this morning? When we wake up in the morning, in the day-to-day this week, when things may seem mundane and routine about the things we must interact with, taking care of a little kid, taking care of an older kid, going to college and class, going back to work, let's turn our thoughts to anticipate how Jesus has made that day to put his sovereign power and glory on display in our lives. 
So that's the first part of the story. It's not a typical morning in Galilee. Second part, part two, a miraculous catch, which we see in verses 4 to 7. Let me read that. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they'd done this, they enclosed a large number of fish. And their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. What you need to realize about Simon is that he's not some amateur. He is a pro fisherman. Likely he has been doing this most of his life. Maybe fishing now in the boat that his father passed down to him because his father and his father and his father were fishermen as well. His livelihood depends on what he catches. And recently, as we find in this story, business has not been that good. He, caught, he went out all night looking to catch something and they don't catch a single thing. And you've got to assume that if he's a pro, fishing at night is the time when you catch fish. And that's why they're out there. So along comes Jesus, teacher. Right when the fishermen are finishing up this tedious work of tying small repair knots in this net and cleaning them, their muscles ached likely. They were hungry. They were probably ready for a good rest. And Probably not the first encounter Simon has with Jesus. In fact, in Luke 4, it tells us how Jesus comes and heals Simon's mother-in-law. And maybe that's what gives Simon a little bit of respect for this man, such that he would take him out or listen to what he says. But even that relationship of respect is tested when Jesus tells Simon not just to go out a little way so he can teach, but then goes one step further and says, let's go out into the deep water. So Jesus changes the plan on Simon. And I'm not really sure how to interpret Simon's response. It could be a mixture of pride that he doesn't really think Jesus has a good idea, and, but he's going to go along with it. Or it could be a humility. Not sure. I invite you to think about that as you meditate on this plan. But, but what's clear is that Jesus changes the plan. And when I think about the way that interacts with my life, when God seemingly changes plans on me, I don't respond very well, typically. Oftentimes, I, I doubt God's wisdom. So if I'm in this story, I would have said, wait a minute, Jesus. You said a little bit from the shore. You didn't say anything about going on a full fishing trip. Or I might like maybe Simon is doing, respond in pride as if I know better than God. And my response would say something like, what does this guy think he knows about fishing? If we didn't catch anything all night, there is no way we're going to do better in the middle of the day. Or maybe I'm just going to think about myself and respond, can't this guy see that I'm tired and frustrated and hungry. Often our emotions and our frustrations, our fatigue and our doubts, so easily become excuses for not humbly trusting and obeying Jesus. But as it is, Simon casts his nets over, and when he does, the nets start to tug hard against him. 
as he struggles to hang on and pull them up, he realizes that he's bringing in the biggest catch of his life. It's so big that he needs another boat to come and help him bring it in. And even both the boats together can barely hold this catch. Realize a fisherman like Simon wouldn't carry a net that breaks easily. Not even under the stress of a large catch. He wouldn't fish in a boat that could sink under the weight of even a large catch of fish. So this catch was far more than Simon expected. Coming back to what we saw about Jesus' sovereignty earlier, now we see it's a good thing Jesus planned for two boats, wasn't it? freshly mended nets. Oh, and I forgot to mention, he also planned for the previous night where the fishermen caught nothing. That too sets the stage for this miraculous catch, doesn't it? That too draws our attention to the fact that Jesus is behind this miracle. Look at his instruction to Simon. Let down your nets for a catch. In other words, let down your nets in order to catch something, it will happen when you put your nets out. The fish were waiting. Jesus had put them there. So the miracle that was about to unfold in front of these fishermen is not some coincidence. It was a foregone conclusion. The point of this story, then, is not that Simon obeyed and Jesus rewarded him with a lot of fish. It's even questionable whether Simon is a good example to us of joyful, trusting obedience. That can't be the point. No, it's, it's true that we should obey Jesus, yes. But our obedience does not in any way manipulate God into blessing us. And as we'll soon see, the miraculous catch of fish becomes an afterthought when compared to Jesus. So let me ask you. Let's say you've gone a year without a job. You have a family that's dependent on you and you're starting to really stress out about the many failed job interviews. And you're sitting on a park bench and a man approaches you with a, with a briefcase. Well, let me back up. A man approaches you and gets to know you, finds out this story, finds out you're needy, need a job, and out of thin air makes a briefcase appear, hands it to you, you unlock it, open it, $10 million in the briefcase. What would your response be? Would you kindly thank the person and walk off with the briefcase? Maybe at first you'd be skeptical, skeptical as we all would, and we'd think it's some kind of trick, but let's just say for the purpose of this story, that you could prove no trick. He created the briefcase out of thin air. You'd be amazed at the person in front of you who just created something from nothing. And you probably start to realize that the briefcase in your hand is far less important than the man standing in front of you. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 47. Here, Ezekiel, in verses 6 through 10, and larger part of this book, is, is being given a vision of a recreated temple, which stands for the new creation that God's going to bring about in the new heavens and the new earth. It will be a place where God will dwell again with his people. 
And an angel in this story is explaining what Ezekiel is seeing. So I'll start reading in verse 6 of chapter 47 in Ezekiel. And he, the angel, said to me, Ezekiel, Son of man, have you seen this? And then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on one side and the other. And he said to me, This water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish. For this water goes there that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea from Engedi to Engelane. It will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. One thing we learn from this text is that one of the signs of the new creation is going to be an abundance of fish, at least in this vision. Now, if you contrast that with Simon's remark in Luke 5, that they had toiled all night and caught nothing, it brings the spotlight onto Jesus when the fish are caught. See, by Jesus' authority, creation is liberated. He's the one who's come to abolish the curse of sin, the toil and the sweat of the brow, and create the world new. It's not hard for the fishermen to do their work. It's easy. In a moment, fish nets down, fish come up. No toil. So I have no idea whether Jesus put his hand in the water, kind of summoned the fish, or if he called out to them, or if just in his mind he thought, fish, it's, it's time for my miracle. But in light of Ezekiel 47, could it be that creation is simply responding to its creator? No audible, tangible, mental summons were required from Jesus that somehow the fish knew who was in the boat before Simon did. The fabric of creation so intertwined with its creator that where the maker goes, what is made by him naturally follows. So that brings us probably to the most important point of this story. And that is that Jesus is the most important point of this story and not the fish. He's not merely a teacher of crowds. He's the creator of the world. He's the commander of the universe. He's the Lord over the oceans. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. By Him all things were created in heaven and on earth. He created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm. He stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. He's inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at His rebuke. He shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no far farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Jesus entered into the springs of the sea and walked in the recesses of the deep. He gathers the waters of the seas as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Jesus is the living God. Let all the earth 
Fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him, for He is a great God. In His hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down, and let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. And that's exactly what Simon does. Part three, a scary realization. Simon witnesses the catch, and he falls down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now that's a curious response, I think. But Luke explains it in verse 9. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. These men seem to realize that what just happened in front of their eyes is only possible if the Creator is standing in their boat. And if Jesus is the Creator, Jesus must be God. And if Jesus is God, God is in their boat. And God is perfect, as we've heard already. And God is holy, as we've sung already. And if Jesus is holy, Simon is in trouble. And in his cry, we hear Isaiah's cry that we read earlier when he stood before the throne of God Almighty and saw his glory and said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, Jesus came to show Simon himself, his power, his might, his holiness. And that sight is far too much for Simon. You notice that Simon doesn't thank Jesus. Could have. Doesn't. Even though who knows how many months' paychecks were taken care of with this one catch. Could have gone home, sold it, and been set for weeks. But Simon seems to see past the miracle and how it benefits him to what we all need to see this morning. And that's this, that there's something about us that means we can't be where God is. And that something is sin. See, to stand before a holy God in our sinful nature is a death sentence. Jesus can see our hearts and there's nothing inside of us that can make us clean enough to stand face to face with a pure God. The best remedy that Simon can think of is to say, get away from me, Jesus. Get away from me. Have you ever gone a long time without talking to God because you feel guilty about some sin in your life? Do you see how you're trying to solve the problem of that sin by creating distance between you and God? If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, is your strategy as a whole just to ignore God and put distance between you and Him? as if that will somehow solve your problem. Friend, distance is not a solution. 
It doesn't remove our guilt and sin. If you haven't found forgiveness in Jesus, distance only delays the judgment that we all deserve for the sins we've committed against God. And if you do believe in Him, but you regularly find yourself putting distance between God because of guilt that you feel over some besetting sin, friend, that's not a solution. It's only delaying the wonderful reconciliation and grace and mercy that you can find in your Savior when you run to Him, confessing your sin and casting it on Him. Maybe Simon's reaction to you is just embarrassing and over the top. Why would one man fall to another man? Bow down before him. Well, I'd ask you, is sin really a big deal to you? If it is, or if it isn't, if you don't think your sin is a problem between you and God, then I challenge you this morning to know today that you don't know God if you don't think sin is a big deal. And I challenge you to invite you to meet Him as He truly is. See, when you come into the presence of the perfect God, the only way to initially respond is to become painfully aware that you are a rebel against Him. As one author wrote, the sight of divine greatness and holiness makes us feel our own littleness and sinfulness. Like Israel beneath Mount Sinai, the words of Simon's heart are, do not have God speak with us, or we will die. The day is coming when all our knees will be on the ground in front of Jesus. And we will all confess that He is Lord. And that's why I'm belaboring the point. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you continue to hold on to your sin, rebel against God and His right authority against you, that day that's coming, that will be a day when you won't be able to get distance between you and God. That will be a day when God's judgment against your sin will not be delayed. Oh friend, you don't want to kneel before Jesus without a solution for your sin. You do not want that. And without protection from His righteous wrath that will fall on you. I'd invite you this morning, repent. Acknowledge this Jesus as your Lord and your Savior and turn to Him in faith, trusting in Him for full forgiveness of all your sins. Church, we praise God that we've found the remedy for this sin in Jesus Christ. Let's remember that our discipleship to Jesus began with the same desperation and destitute state that Simon finds himself in right here. That's where, our, that's where Jesus found us. That's where he appeared to us. And that's where we would be without his grace and mercy. Let's continue understanding what we've been called from, rescued from, continuing to follow him in humility that leads to obedience. See, being on our knees in confession before Jesus, it's not about wallowing in self-loathing or guilt as if that accomplishes something. No, it's about taking a humble position and posture that gives us the clearest view of our greatest hope. And that's something Simon is about to discover. Part four, a comforting commission in verse 10. 
Before we see Jesus' response, let's pause to feel the tension of this moment. Jesus has yet to answer. So for Simon, it's like the silence in the courtroom before the verdict comes down as guilty. The sickness in Simon's stomach, his heart pounding, his muscles tensed, anticipating judgment from a holy God, his mind racing. Is there any way out of this and finding no way? And the honest and sinking awareness that he's about to likely receive what he deserves. Is your sin like that? Is it more than you can bear? Do you, be, do you struggle to feel free from its weight, finding no relief? Has God shown Himself to you as holy and you know your sinful heart is exposed and condemned? Then I'd invite you. Pay close attention to what Jesus is about to say. Jesus says, do not be afraid. And in these words rests the hope of all mankind. Jesus ignores Simon's fearful request and instead gives this command of comfort. Rather than depart, as Simon asked for, Jesus stays. Rather than strike Simon down, Jesus offers himself on the cross to be stricken, smitten, afflicted with the force of God's righteous wrath. To provide hope for you and to provide hope for me, Jesus was hanged for us. To lift us from our knees, Christ was lifted up as an atonement, as a substitute, as a sacrifice for our sins. To give us life, He took death. So we've seen Jesus as sovereign. We've seen Jesus as creator. And now we see Jesus as Savior. So there is a remedy for us. There is a way out. And Jesus is that way. And we find that way through repentance and faith. And once we have been forgiven, once we have been washed from our sins and the, the penalty put on Jesus has been removed from us, then we can live in this fearless hope. Fearless hope. Do not be afraid. The fearless hope given by Jesus himself. A life of confidence that God is with us always. A life lived in hope that we will get to live with God always, even as we walk with Him today. So don't be afraid if you've struggled and fallen. Jesus stands ready to forgive you. His love drives out our fear. And when Satan tempts us with despair and tells us that we are guilty, that we are condemned, we can hear Jesus' voice answering, do not be afraid. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And I am the Lord your God. So Jesus releases Simon from fear and sets a new job before him. Simon is saved from fear in order to fearlessly serve God. And Jesus' words to Simon recall something we find in Jeremiah 16. There, Jeremiah prophesies against the people of Israel for their covenant disobedience. For their sin, God promises to punish them and throw them out of their land. But this exile is not going to last forever because days are coming. 
when God will bring people back to their land, just as he did in the Exodus. And the way the people will be brought back will be through the means God sends, namely, fishers who will catch them and hunters who will hunt them. So when Jesus says to the disciples that they will be catching men, that's our cue. That's our cue that the days talked about in Jeremiah, now hundreds of years later since when they were spoken, those days had come. Jesus identifies himself as the one who sends. He is the one who fills the promise in Jeremiah 16. And so the book of Acts, if you sit down and read it, relates that this is exactly what Simon and Peter and other apostles do. They go out preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, and thousands are added to their number. And on their gospel confession, the church is built and remains even to today, even to this morning, even to this place. Here is our commission from the Lord Jesus himself. We aren't fishers of men because Jesus looks at us and sees some goodness in us or some holiness apart from him. He doesn't look at us and see, oh, he's an evangelist because of the skill set that I've given him. No, we set ourselves to the work of seeking out the lost and telling them the saving news of Jesus Christ because that's what Jesus has given us to do. That's his commission for us. We're sinners who were once condemned and yet God has set us free and given us the privilege to be his fishers. What an encouragement in that then to see the boats full of fish. Jesus can do the same with people, you know. Go out and fish with the gospel message. Do it in love and pray that this church will be full even to overflowing its doors with men and women that Jesus has gathered and chosen. Finally, part five, an appropriate response. Verse 11. How do Simon and James and John respond to Jesus' comfort and commission? Read with me in verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Remember the $10 million briefcase? Imagine being so caught up with the man who made it appear that you completely forgot about the briefcase. You left it sitting there in the park bench as you walked and talked with the man who gave it to you. The fishermen are now disciples. They were fearful at Jesus' feet. Now they are followers in Jesus' steps. What would have meant the world to these fishermen just moments ago, the biggest catch of their lives, now they leave it on the shore and they walk away from it. What's your everything? What's your everything this morning? Is it your family? Is it your job? Is it your reputation? Is it money? Is it financial security? Comfort, love from someone else? Would you leave your everything? Have you left everything to follow Jesus? I hope you've seen already 
that compared to those things, Jesus is better, and infinitely so. See, the beautiful irony of Luke 5.11 is that in the same instant that we surrender everything, we gain more than we ever had before. We gain Jesus. Jesus who laid down his life to give us eternal life. We gain him. And so we lay down our lives because we want the life that Jesus gives us instead. How do we respond then? Well, with joy. With joy. Let's do as the disciples did. Let us turn our backs to everything. Let's lay those things down and follow Jesus. Not because we think there's some physical or material blessing in it for us, but because of who Jesus is and the fact that He is worthy of that response. He is worthy of whole life worship. So I'm not suggesting that we go home and sell everything that we have and walk away from our responsibilities. No, God has given us those things. He means for us to carefully and discerningly and wisely steward them and use them for Him and for His glory. And we also shouldn't look at what the disciples did and praise their devotion and sacrifice and somehow think it's impossible for an ordinary Christian like me to respond like that. No, what the disciples did was not radical. What the disciples did that day was not radical. Sure, it, it looks radical to a world that doesn't know who Jesus truly is. But after all the disciples had seen that day, what other way were they going to spend their life? Would they bring in the fish and watch Jesus walk off? Every time they set foot in that boat again, go out to fish, they would remember and recall when the Creator stood right there in front of them. Every time they pulled in those nets, they would remember the sensation of the weight of the miraculous catch that Jesus Himself had orchestrated. Every time they felt the sting of their own sin and fear and despair. They'd regret, regret not giving their lives to follow the Savior who said, do not be afraid. For these men who had encountered the Sovereign, the Creator, the Savior Jesus, whole life worship is the only response they could give. And just as the fish swarmed to their Creator, so too these fishermen could not help but follow the one who made them. We've encountered Jesus this morning in his word like the disciples were made to follow Jesus and there is no life outside of that. So will you walk out the door ignoring this or will you walk out following him? What a view of Jesus in Luke 5. I pray you're captured and captivated with Jesus Christ so that the world has no more attraction to you that sin's chains broken by the power of Jesus' death and resurrection lay behind you, that the world's attractions are totally eclipsed by the beauty and the majesty of the Lord Jesus, and that the world's promises are emptied out and proved 
untrue in the face of Jesus, who is altogether true and wonderful. As those chosen by him, as those convinced of our own sin and need of him, as those confessing his blood as the only way to be made spotless, as those comforted by his love and those commissioned to carry his gospel, let us humbly then commit our lives to follow wherever our Lord Jesus leads us and tell others of what he has done. Let's pray. Lord, the power in your word is that it tells us who you are and reveals to us that you are God and you are sovereign and you are the one who has created and you are the one who has sent your son Jesus for forgiveness of sins and eternal life in his name. So Lord, we thank you for the true picture that we've seen this morning of you. I pray that what Simon saw is what we will see. That we would be led to conviction of our own unholiness in the face of your holiness. That we would hear from your mouth, Lord Jesus, the words you spoke to Simon, that in you there is no need of fear, for in you there is salvation and rest and peace. And Lord, I pray that as your church, we would hear from you, our captain, the commission you've given each and every one of us to go out and to fish for others, to cast out the net of the gospel and pray that you would bring in your people. Lord, in all these things, we have seen and we long to see again your glory displayed. We long to see it in Austin. We long to see it in Dubai. We long to see it throughout the world. And so, Father, accomplish your glory for your name's sake. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.